Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us today. It is our desire at Faith to help you connect, grow, and go in your walk with God. We hope you're encouraged by this message from Pastor Steve. I want to invite you to turn with me no less than to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look at chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going we're gonna to stop there for, we're going to camp there for today because as warm and fuzzy as a day like Valentine's Day may make us feel with regard to our closest personal relationships, and it provides a platform for such expression, it's, it also provides us a lens by which we can step back and we can examine the, the love levels of our Christian interactions. Moreover, we can examine the love levels of our Christian motivation. What moves us? What compels us? What stirs us? Why are you here today? Why are any of us here today? What's going on in your life that has got you out of bed on a Sunday morning, got you together, and got you to the house of the Lord today? Is it your habit? Is it your tradition? Um, Or are you compelled by love? Um, when, you, when you move in the community, are you moved of necessity? Do you maintain appearances because you're a Christian, or are you moved by love? And so those are the kind of things we're going to be looking at today, and we're going to be examining together, because the truth of the matter is, maybe none of you do this, but sometimes I do, and if it's a hazard or seems to be a hazard to you, just be aware. Um, I drive a silver Chevy Silverado truck, so if you see any of those coming down the highway, you might be, you know, aware that it may be me, and it may be hazardous to your health, so you might want to pull over a little bit and give me room. But if this has ever happened to you, maybe you can agree with this, or you can find some identity in this, but sometimes I'm driving places, and if it's a place that I've driven a number of times, I can be a lot farther down the road than I have realized that I am. In, in other words, I will have passed places and it's such a second nature that, that I'm passing those places that I'm driving that route that I'll be down the road and I just realize all of a sudden where I am and I don't remember passing some of the previous landmarks or junctions. You ever get somewhere and you think to yourself, did I stop at the last intersection or was the light green or what, what happened there? Because sometimes we become so accustomed to the, to the routes and the habits of life that we can do it subconsciously, almost unconsciously sometimes, and, and we, we just arrive at the right place, almost as if by accident. Or just habit we arrive at the right place and sometimes you and I can get so accustomed to it's Sunday morning at 9 a.m. it's Sunday morning 1045 it's Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock it's it's time for the vacation Bible school it's time for uh, this activity or that event and we get so programmed into church life and we we learn the dialects I call it of Christianese that we can just fall into these slots and these ruts where we're, we're doing things and we're going through the motion of things 
but we seldom will stop to examine the motivation and the reason why we're doing what we were doing in the first place. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, the resurrected Lord there is addressing, there was one church in particular that he said he had something against them, and their problem was that they had left their first love. Now, instantly in our minds, when we, when we you know, interpret that at face value, we automatically think to ourselves that, well, what Jesus means is that they were engaged in dead religion and this thing, but they had forgotten Jesus. And that's part of it. But how many of you know when we engage in dead religion and we begin to do things out of habit, we not only fall out of our love position with Jesus, but we can also fall that same way out of love with our fellow man and lose sight of the reason why we do some of the things that we do. And I was, in my study this week, I ran across this blog, and I, I just said, I've got to share this, I've got to include this in today's message, because I found this blog by Pastor Dane Davis from Impact Christian Church in Victorville, California. And he writes, we've all met them. At some time or another, you may have been one. I'm talking about cold Christians. Christian followers who do all the right things but without a bit of love. Many a marriage has fallen apart, not because there was an affair, abuse, or abandonment, but because there was no love in the marriage. And just as a marriage can't survive for very long without love, a church can't survive very long without love either. As the Bible scholar Leon Morris puts it, a church can continue only for so long on a loveless course. If they repent, they may be saved. But if not, there is no hope. Church, I want to talk to you today about the fact that the unstoppable church is motivated by love. The unstoppable church is motivated by love. Because I stand in agreement with Mr. Morris here as he puts it that an unlovable church, an unloving church I should say, can only survive and only thrive for so long before it halts. If you want to see this illustrated, you can look around on the landscape of Christianity in our society today. I could probably recount for you the history of the church that you see with its doors closed with the weeds grown around it and the holes in the window and the siding falling off. And if I were to venture to tell you that story, I would venture to tell you a story of a people who came together as they supposed in the name of Christ and they went through all of the motions. But at the heart of it, they were more deeply concerned about things within the four walls of the church, moreover, maybe even material things like the color of the carpet and the shape of the seats and the condition of the buildings and the grounds, but they lack love for their community and they lack love for one another. And when the, when the, when the, when the concerns of the 
things that on which they were focused began to well up inside of them, they began to turn and bicker on one another, and they lost their trademark of an authentic disciple. And then the witness to the world was, these people can't even get along with themselves. I don't want to be any part of that. Several funerals later, we get into the position now where there's a vacant building that used to be a church. Because as you know, the church is not the building, it's the people. And a loveless church can only survive for so long. And the New Testament is replete with admonitions for the body of Christ to be a living, loving organism, not a dead, dry, loveless organization. As a matter of fact, Jesus in John chapter 13 says this, a new command is given to the disciples there that they would love one another in the manner that Christ had loved them. And Jesus continues in verse 35 and says that this love that they would share one with another in the manner in which Christ loved them. And I want to remind you at the onset of this message today that the way that Christ loved me was when I was at my least worthy to be a recipient of his love. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament we learn that it's, it's easy even the, the, the Gentiles, or in the context of the New Testament, people who claim no faith, those people can love people who love them back. It's easy to reciprocate love. But it's a different story when we're called upon to love in the way that Christ loved. How did Christ love me? In that while I was yet a sinner, he died for me. When my carnal mind was at enmity against him, he loved me. And that's the way that he loved me. And Jesus says that when we share this kind of love one with another, it's an evidence to the rest of the world around us of the authenticity of our faith. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples because you have that kind of love one for another. That's what's, that's what's going to give authenticity to your witness now there there's a more familiar scripture dealing with the subject of love than uh, probably any other words that have been penned and if we find it in first corinthians 13 and i trust you've got your place there and let me just set up this word here for just a second because many people come to this text and they use it as a standalone piece we hear it recited at weddings and and it's on the little plaques that you get to set up knickknacks around the house and you'll see the the first corinthians 13 passage and it's often wrested from its context and and used as a standalone piece or just a kind of thought of as a random interjection of thoughts into what was otherwise a teaching on spiritual gifts but you and i as we look at first corinthians 13 we've got to read the transitions both the, the transition leading into this text and the transition coming out of this text. And at the end of chapter 12, Paul is speaking on the topic of spiritual gifts and he encourages the church saying, earnestly desire the best gifts and yet I show you a more excellent way. He's been talking to them about the operation of gifts of the Spirit. And he comes to that end of that chapter and he says, 
I want you to desire spiritual gifts, but I want to show you a more excellent way, something that's more important, something that is of a, of a greater urgency. And then we read in, at the end of chapter 13, we read all about the love there, and chapter 14 resumes with pursue love. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. We spent a lot of time in the series talking about the priorities of the Christian life, and I think Paul is spelling one out here for us as he both introduces and then leads out of this topic of love. He's saying, listen, above all else, you, I need to show you something here that is so important. I'm going to interrupt this teaching on spiritual gifts, and I'm going to share with you this important facet of Christian life. It actually underscores the preeminence of sharing the love of Christ first and foremost. And the, the context is instruction and operational gifts. And it, it relates to things inside the church. But it should be understood not only as the op way things are to operate inside of the church, it should also be understood as the MO for any spiritual activity inside or outside of the church. That your and my life as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should be indelibly marked by the love of Christ. Now, sometimes we live with a, a tension in our society. And I, I'm telling you, this is, this is a tactic of the adversary. And it is to be divisive. And it is to bring points of distinction even in the body of Christ. And we're really good as human beings at being distinctive, aren't we? We have all kinds of labels and all kinds of assignments that we put on people. There, there are the mature saints and there are the immature saints. There is the saved and there is the lost. And, and the hazard in that is that sometimes we can so categorize and so compartmentalize our lives that we don't have any problem with coming into the house of God and operating in love because we understand that that is the M.O. Because after all, we're really anxious to see the gifts of the Spirit in operation. So we come in and we serve and we strive together in love. But that's us. And we forget about them. And oftentimes, I want to clarify this because we, I feel like it's crucial to the message today. We hear that love to love one another, and that's an obvious command, right? We, who does not understand the command to love one another? Okay, we're all clear on that. We got it. It's, it's obvious, okay? We understand that is, that's what's being said to us here. I am to love my brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of our differences, regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our opinions, regardless of our disagreements, I am to love as Christ has loved. My life at one point was an absolute and total disagreement against the person of Jesus Christ, yet he loved me. 
There may be somebody seated in this room. There may be somebody that comes to second service whose life is an absolute disagreement to everything upon which your life is founded and every opinion that you have. Love them. And we understand that, right? Every, we're clear on that. But then we, we hear also a command that says, love not the world. And I just, this is where I really want to draw clarity here because love not the world means a disdain for a system that is out of sync with the values of God's kingdom. And it does not refer to a hatred or a lack of love for a people who are outside of the, of the confines of the church. As a matter of fact, it was those people them that God so loved that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life so we're called to love and we're called to be conveyors of Christ's love not only in the confines of the church but also as we go outside of this place too so I wanted to start with that clarity and then we come, to, we come to 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm going to go back to my illustration earlier and just say this, that loveless activity is fruitless. Loveless activity is fruitless. And we read here from the apostle, and it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mystery and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, this is, a, of course, Paul speaking in hyperbole. I mean, this is an impossibility, but he's saying, if I could, if it were even possible for me to be this dynamic of a Christian in appearance and in ability, and I could do all these things, but it wasn't motivated by love, if I had all faith so that I could remove the mountains and have not love, I am nothing. There are very few of us, myself included, that if we had the gift of prophecy and we could understand all mysteries and all knowledge and we had the faith to remove mountains, who would ever be able to come to the resolution that we were less than everything? You agree with that? Hallelujah. I mean, we would be spiritual superheroes. But Paul says it doesn't matter how hot you think you are, how spiritual you think you are, how great you think you are, if you're not motivated by love, it's nothing. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. I want to tell you today, church, that religious activity does not equal spiritual progress. I'm going to say that one more time because you need to write it down. Religious activity does not equal spiritual progress. As a matter of fact, Paul says that if religious activity is not motivated by love, love for God, love for his church, love for the lost, then it's nothing but noise. In other words, there, there can be a lot of religious-looking things going on, but that doesn't necessarily equate to spiritual life and spiritual maturity. It's a fruitless activity that yields nothing. And the reason that we say that 
the unstoppable church is motivated by love is because fruitlessness will eventually yield to spiritual lethargy. I'm not interested in having another habit. We spend all our lives and all of our efforts trying to break habits, don't we? I don't need another habit. I don't need the habit of church attendance. I don't need the habit of of this thing, although it's important and there is opportunity every time we come for the Holy Spirit to minister to us. It has got to be more than a habit. I, I don't need another habit of just doing this thing because this is the thing to do. I want to do something that makes a difference. I want to be a part of something that is changing the world. And what happens is because of fruitlessness, there begins to build in people a spirit of lethargy, and lethargy among God's people will eventually lead to devaluing of the Christian life and the practices of Christianity. Did you know that there are multitudes of people right now in the United States who believe that church is an absolute waste of time? Blog after blog, tweet after tweet, article after article, you can find people who passionately hold the position that going to church and being a part of a body of believers is a colossal waste of time. And here's our usual response. It usually sounds something like this. If a believer has made this claim, then what we would say, those of us who are faithful to the house of the Lord, we would say, well, if they were really believers, and if they really had what they say they've got, and if they really are what they say they are, then they wouldn't be saying things like that. And if it's an unbeliever who says something like this, then we, we would get together and we would talk about how blinded the world is to their need of a Savior and what a vile, rank form of sinner those people are. How dare they question the things that we hold so dear? How dare them speak against the body of Christ? How dare them talk about the church that way? God's going to show them one day those sinners are going to pay. And I hope I'm like Jonah sitting up on the hill with my little shade tree growing over my head so I can see God's wrath and destruction poured out. But the one thing that we seldom do is stop and take a look in the mirror for just a minute and ask ourselves as people who attend every week, does anyone see anything in my life that would make them want to have what I say I've got? Or another way to ask is, is my life so marked by the love of Christ that it is clearly witnessed to the world around us that I am the redeemed of the Lord? My life resonates with his love, or do I appear simply to be wasting my own time by going through the motions that are bearing no fruit in my own life? I understand your glazed-over look at me this morning because that is quite a reflection. But here's the thing. Christians. How many Christians do we have in the room? If you're a Christian, raise your hand. If you, if you claim 
that as your designation in life, there we go. Okay, good. Do you know, you know how Christians came to be called Christians? It wasn't a title that they claimed for themselves. It's a title that was actually given them by the world around them as they surveyed their lives. They looked on at these people and said, they are like their leader, Christ. They didn't have to tell people they were Christian. People identified them as Christian. The world. It wasn't a classification that they boasted in, that they prided themselves in. As a matter of fact, it wasn't the product of the mind of the church anyway. It was a product of identification by a world who looked on and saw the likeness and the resemblance of the one whom they said they followed. They said, man, these people look like Christ. Christians. Christians. And love is the very nature of God. We read in 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. I read it to you. If you're like me, you can't help but hear in the children's church song. But anyway, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But he who does not love does not know God because God is love. Paul explains that that nature to us in the following few verses as Paul sharing on the characteristics of love he is no less explaining the nature of God that will manifest in our lives if we too are bearers of this facet of his nature and this is what he says love suffers long and is kind love is patient we might say and love is kind love does not envy love does not parade itself is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. American philosopher and writer, Christian writer, mainly in the realm of spiritual formation was once asked, Dallas Willard was once asked, why are Christians so mean? And he responded by saying that Christians tend to be mean to the degree that they value being right over being like Christ. He said that Christians tend to be mean to the degree that they value being right over being like Christ. And, and the truth is that sometimes we can get so caught up in doing the right things and standing for the right things, we get so caught up sometimes in doing things in the name of Christ that we forget to do things in the nature of Christ. We were talking about this in staff meeting the other day and and one of our team members spoke up, Pastor Trey spoke up and said, you know, that reminds me of the verse in John 14, verse 13, that says, and whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And we begin talking about that Greek word there for the word name that's used there. And it's, it's, it's just, it's about asking, but 
that's prayer, and prayer is a religious activity, right? And, and Thayer's definition of this Greek word says this, the name is used for everything which the name covers. Every, everything, the thought or feeling of which is aroused in the mind by mentioning, hearing, remembering the name, i.e., for one's rank, authority, interest, pleasures, command, excellences, deeds, etc. In other words, we're to live and we're to have our being in Christ, in His name, in His likeness. And we're to reflect Him to the world around us. And, and when tasked with bearing his own cross to Calvary, it was love that motivated Jesus beyond the agony of the moment. And when we're asked to die daily to ourselves in order that Christ might live in us and his love radiate through us, it will be a Christ-like love that also will motivate us beyond the pain of dying to self. And there's something, and the reason I stress this today is because there is something that's irresistible about this kind of love-motivated service to God. People are drawn to the love of Christ in us. They, they may not agree with us on every thought, but they can see Christ's love manifest through us. And when the love of Christ is seen through His church, we begin to experience again fruitfulness. And when the church experiences fruitfulness, the church continues to move forward and it's unstoppable in its pursuits of the kingdom's work. Why? Because we see that what we say all the time is actually working. People are being saved. People are being delivered. People are being set free. Do you want to see a church fill up? Let people come in and start being saved and delivered and set free. It won't be just the newcomers and the new converts, but it'll be people of God that are hungry to see a move of the Spirit and, and things actually happen. They don't want to be a part of some dead, dry, religious cult that's just going through the motions all the time, but they want to see a body of believers that is actually pursuant of the will of God in their lives, and when the love of God God flows through us it will touch the world around us now in this you know we can develop all kinds of strategies but that doesn't guarantee success we can have the very best resources but that doesn't mean that those things are going to be adequate we can employ any number of programs but that doesn't ensure that effective ministry is taking place we, we might even have a church that's rich in the operation of spiritual gifts, but Paul says that that too may not be adequate to get the job done. And then Paul established that works apart from love are useless. And here he looks back to his remarks at the setup of this teaching at the end of chapter 12 when he said, and behold, I show you a more excellent way. And Paul continues here in verse 8 and says this, but love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Won't they, though? Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. We don't have any corner on wisdom. We, we walk in the knowledge of the Word. We're relying on the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds to receive that Word. 
And he continues and says, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. It doesn't matter what we do, how well we do them, they are inadequate and flawed without the perfect love of Christ filling our hearts and serving as our motivation. I cannot tell you the number of people over the last several years who have begun to attend this church and when asked, why did you choose to continue to attend Faith Assembly Church? Their response is, not because of the dynamic sermons, not because of the great worship team, it's about the warm welcome they receive from the greeters and the sense of warmth that they and their families experienced coming through the door. They say that the love of Christ is evident. And as it relates to love, especially loving those outside the church, I believe that when I got to verse 11, the Lord impressed upon my heart that love recognizes its own shortfalls. Love will cause us sometimes to conclude that we're not so perfect ourselves and we might actually have contributed some way to the issue at hand. First Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, obviously, this is a word of an encouraging word for you and I to mature as believers in a personal sense. There's, there's a call there that, listen, if, if you're hung up on the same petty junk you were 10 years ago, let it go and grow up in Christ. Put away the childish things. Mature in the Lord, okay? So there's, there's a word encouraging maturity, but it's also a call to be reflective of God's grace to others. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child also. Now serving the Lord 30 years or more, growing up with a drug problem, being drugged to church every time the doors were open, I know more. But there's somebody who's coming behind me who's still at a place that they are, as spiritually speaking, a child. They understand as a child and they speak as a child and they do childish things. And I gotta love them. I gotta love them. When they put trite, petty little things all over face, I gotta love them. When they stand around and do all kinds of stuff, I gotta love them. When you are confronted with people around you, you've gotta understand that in this verse here that says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Well, if you're at a place of maturity now where you can see the error of that way, then that's great and God bless you and you need to progress in that. But there's also a, a call to reflect God's grace that has been shown to you that while you were a child, God didn't strike you with judgment. 
And when we see those around us who are less mature in their spiritual development, we've got to extend the same grace to say to them, listen, I, I'm not going to judge you here because I've been where you're at. I, I've walked through that same place. But let me share with you my testimony. I'm not going to stand here today and tell you how right I am and how wrong you are, but let me share with you my testimony about what I did when I was walking where you were and how the Lord led me through that. Does that make sense? I started off the same way that those new converts are starting off. I stumbled and still do, and to, be, to the best of my ability and with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm maturing in my faith, but, faith, but nevertheless, I've not got it perfect and I don't have all the answers, and I don't expect that anybody else would either. Verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall be known, I shall know just as I also am known. I've served the Lord for a number of years, and I do know a lot more today than when I started out. And I may know a lot more today than someone else does, but I've got to remember I don't know it all. I, I know in part, I prophesy in part, I'm nobody's judge, but what God's doing in their lives might be beyond my finding out or my seeing how it will ever work out for the glory of God, but I've got to partner with God in loving them to a place of maturity. And then there's the necessity of love final verse and it says this and now abide faith hope and love these three but the greatest of these is love listen love doesn't trump truth there, there are some people who want to love to the expense and the detriment of truth like your child struggling with their sexual identity we want to turn away from the truth of God's word and just love and I, I know it's a painful thing maybe to, to recognize that but you have to love in the truth and there's a way to do that your, your, your loved one is doing this thing over here that's difficult for you to deal with you don't, love doesn't supersede truth but we are to be vigilant in loving with the truth. And I, I know sometimes we, we look at a world that is suffering from a moral rot and we see people who seem to care so little about the things of God. We may even feel attacked ourselves because of the things we see in the world around us. And it makes every fiber of our being become so righteously indignant and we want to break super virtuous on the rest of the world around us as people of faith and hope and let the world know the truth. But the greatest virtue that's imparted in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit is the, is the ability to love as Christ has loved. That's something we can't do in and of ourselves. It's, it, it comes from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and it's a part of the Spirit's empowerment to be witnesses of Christ. Would you stand with me? The word says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And as long as there's a church who partners with God in giving themselves to make sure that there's a, there's a church 
to make sure that everyone knows the grace of Almighty God, the church will remain unstoppable. I want to challenge you today, church. Sometimes this is this message of Christian love, it, it can really come across sometimes as an indictment. And just a get it together kind of message. And you know what? I don't come with any fiber of that in my being today. I don't, I don't come with any, any presupposition that that needs to be the, the tone that's taken with this body. Because you are a loving church. There's never a need that you're not reaching out. There's never a newcomer that is parting our doors that doesn't find a warm reception. But this is an encouragement today to continue to be a loving church. This is a caution today that your adversary would seek to divide and distract and draw us away from being a loving church and supply us with any number of reasons why we shouldn't. But we've got to continue being a loving church. And if we continue being a loving church, we will continue to be a thriving church. And our lives will be trademarked by heaven and we will be unstoppable because we will be purveyors of the love of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Father, I come to you in the strong name of Jesus and I thank you for your grand illustration of love. And then while we were yet sinners, you gave your son to die for us. And God, I realize that sometime the call to exhibit that same kind of love will lead me to my own personal Gethsemane. Where I have to consider the, the offenses of others. I have to consider the condition of the world around me that seems so opposed to everything that I value and cherish. I have to consider the transgressions of those, Lord, that have come against me and offended me. And I have to die to self and love. But God, I realize that being a part of someone else's redemptive process is more important than the cross I may have to bear in the moment. And Lord, as a body, as a people, help us, Lord, to be ever aware of that thought that the most important thing that we can do in this life is to share the love of Christ. Because if you be lifted up from the earth, you declared you will draw all men to yourself. God, help, help my life, help our lives collectively 
exalt you. And God, we know that the, the only way that we can authentically lift you up and exalt you is by demonstrating the love that you have so freely and so richly poured out in our lives. And thereby, Lord, you are glorified. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this inspirational message today. If you would like more information about Faith Assembly, please visit us on the web at faith-assembly.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you have a blessed day.